we hadn't prepared our presentations together, but I, I think mine builds on beautifully to Dan's. I'd like to thank Chris for inviting me here today. I'm a senior fellow of the King's Fund, so I declare that conflict of interest. Um, because the title is uh, about the next 50 years, the main message I want to give you today is that I feel um, very optimistic about the future of the NHS and our country. I say that for two reasons. The first reason is, for the last three and a half years as Global Chairman, I've worked in 40 countries on 130 occasions. So I know quite a bit now about global health care. And the second reason I say it, because the, the title is about the next 50 years, I've looked at the audience and very few of us will be around to prove or disprove my <laughs> points. But the reason why, um, having worked in 40 countries with public and private organisations and government ministers and NGOs, is that when you look at um, efficiency, equity and effectiveness, when you put all of those three things together, the NHS, I think, stands up as one of the best, if not the best, in the world. And it's important that I tell you that today because, in a sense, we are in a moment in, in the UK with a flatlining economy, with a big efficiency challenge in the NHS, but it is possible to make our great NHS even greater. And I think, fundamentally, we've got the broad structure of the way we're organised right. I want to suggest one or two things at the end, and they actually touched on the, the last slide, but bear with me. I'm not going to pick all 40 countries, but I am going to pick some countries which you might think are, are high-performing and some countries which you may not have heard too much about. So given that the World Health Organization dropped its World League ranking tables back in 2000 because it was too politically contentious, and as you probably remember, it put the French as number one. By the way, they've been dining out on that for the last 13 years. I mean, seriously, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment or two. But um, as far as I can tell now, any decent independent think tank, and let's call it the Commonwealth Fund from the US, puts, do you know which country is number one? I've got a pound in my pocket. Anybody like to guess? Not Nigel Edwards, he always gets it right. It's the Netherlands. Now, um, let me just spend a few minutes on the Netherlands. I'm going to just canter through a few countries. So um, three or four years ago, I recruited the Deputy Prime Minister of the Netherlands and the Chief Finance Minister, Walter Bos. Uh, he's now our Head of Health and Public Services in the Netherlands. The Netherlands was rated number one by the Commonwealth Fund. It spends 11.8% uh, of its GDP on healthcare, so that's two percentage points higher than ours. It has, uh, as you know, competing commissioners, six large commissioners, and the state has largely got out of managing directly providers. So in a sense, and they've spent 20 or 30 years thinking about these market principles. They were introduced in 2006, and guess what? The coalition that Vauta just helped to put together, its first act was to try and increase the co-insurance by €425. Euros. There was revolution in the streets of Amsterdam. The government uh, fell back, but still has increased the patient uh, deductible, which is the amount that you have to pay before your insurance kicks in. Now, the point that I want to make is, and when I speak and we do work with the insurers, they say it's a terribly fragmented system. We can't control the pathways of care. Our GPs are paid separately from our hospital specialists. Um, the organisations don't really want to think about a bigger picture, and we can't control costs. Now, this is the highest performing health system in the world that spends 2% more of its GDP than we do. Now, let's go to Canada. Uh, we spend a lot of time in Canada. Very good country, beautiful, beautiful people. Uh, on the right side of the world, great resources in terms of shale gas and oil, and pretty prosperous. But some of its provinces, like Ontario, are looking at very big, deep deficit reductions. 
As you may know, uh, their NHS was established in the Canada Health Act of 1946. Second question for a pound, do you know who set up the Canada Health Service, which is very similar to our own National Health Service? Do you know who that person was? He was a Scottish GP. I can't remember his name, but it's true, he's a Scottish GP. Uh, now, the Canadians love the Queen and their NHS almost as much as we love our Queen and our NHS. And we've been doing a lot of work in Ontario, which has a significant budget deficit, because it's not where oil's produced. Now, um, what's interesting about Canada is, in Ontario, they recruited one of their most respected economists, a guy called Don Drummond. If you get a chance, go onto the Ontarian government website and look at Don Drummond's report. It's about 200 pages. He is a leading economist, uh, advising his, all the banks, and as you know, Canada sailed through the banking crisis because it had uh, sensible banks. It spends 11.4% of its GDP on health. And uh, I'm not going to go through the Drummond's uh, report. I want you to read it, but it's 100 and 153 recommendations. It's a bit busy. That's why I guess he was never a manager. 153 things can't be implemented. But um, let me just read some of them out. Cap health spending growth, 2.5% per year. Don't increase health over the rate of country GDP growth. Shift resources away from hospitals to home care. Shift resources from acute care to chronic care. Put more resources towards prevention and self-care. Continue to organise the delivery of healthcare around local health integrated networks. They used to be called PCTs or CCGs to me and you. And then he says, cap doctor pay. So well, I was there in November. They're having a right old ding-dong with doctors because doctors, in, just in case you don't know, are paid separately to hospitals. So basically, they, they are driven by fee-for-service, cost-and-volume contracts. Did you know in Canada, dirty little secret here in Ontario, 20% of the total healthcare costs in Canada's go into doctors' pockets? And they're just frozen pay for two years. Now, let's swing to the east. Um, Singapore, which I've got a great deal of respect for, when it became independent from us, in 1959, the first thing it did, it's a very small country, as you know, no natural resources, only 5 million people. It's basically, it's, if, if a country could be a professional services firm, it's Singapore. <laughs> and basically they, obviously, you know, through the war, great uh, deep-seated deep paranoia about the instability in that part of Asia. What they did is they sent their best, and they're very highly paid civil servants, by the way, and they're excellent, to study all of the systems in the world. And basically, they came up with a different system, which I think, in terms of innovation, I don't think we can do it in Britain, but I do think it's, it's, it's pretty innovative. For those of you who don't know, it's called the 3M system. So it's a MediSave, a MediShield, and MediFund. And basically, it's compulsory. It believes in the principles of social solidarity, like we do. And basically, you pay in, and basically, you take out. And you can top up your paying in with another fund. And in 2002, it introduced a new fund called... Elder Shield, and now 25% of the population already is taking out compulsory long-term care and aged care insurance. And basically, there is a big debate now in Singapore. It spends 4% of its GDP on health. And do you know what its average life expectancy is? I've got one more pound in my pocket somewhere. It's the third highest in the world at 83 years of age. Now, some people say when they look at Singapore, ah, that's because they're all very young. Actually, by 2030, 25% of their population will be aged over 65. That's another little dirty secret in parts of Asia. A massive explosion of long-term conditions and an ageing population. The point of, and the point about Singapore is that 
it's got an interesting governance structure, as you probably know. The, the PAP, the People's Action Party, have never been unelected from power since 1959. The share of the popular vote dropped for the first time to under 60%. Imagine that in the West, under 60%. And the government got very scared. So guess what it's decided to do? We work a lot with the government. Last year it announced it's going to double the amount of money it spends on health in seven years from 4 billion to 8 billion, something like that, from 4% of GDP up to about 7.5% of GDP. It's going to build 30% more hospital beds, but we are trying our best to advise them that don't, they shouldn't replicate the 20th century model of Western care. So they are also in public-private partnerships, investing in increasing the supply of community and aged care facilities by 100%, and they promise their healthcare workers a pay rise in excess of 20%. Can you imagine how the rest of Asia feels about little old Singapore? Very happy or a bit cheesed off? <laughs> Japan. I spend a lot of time in Japan. Uh, Japan, I think, is a, a, an amazing system. It's a universal system. It was created in 1961. You know that Japan has the oldest inhabitants on the planet. Do you know what their average life expectancy is? My final 5P. 84.5 years of age. They spend 8.5% of GDP. They have thousands of health insurers. They have thousands and thousands of doctor-owned and corporation-owned hospitals. But they have a single price-setting authority. Now, my love for the NHS is on record. A single-payer system in times of recession is the most sensible thing in the world to have. Single-payer systems are not the same as single pricing systems. In Japan, they have a single pricing system. So... This is the truth. The cabinet, every two years, sits around the table and decides how much money is going into health and social care and then tells the thousands of insurers that is the rate of increase. That's it. So they have a very, very detailed costing methodology and pricing methodology, and they go, right, that's all interesting. It's 0.5%. And so uh, what, what Japan have done, however, and I think this is worth studying... And if there was more time today, we should talk about Korea. That's a very interesting country to study. What Japan did in 2000, because, as you know, they've got the largest number of old people on the planet. I don't know if you also knew that it's depopulating. It, its size will reduce from 122 million by 32 million people over the next 20 years. And its economy is sclerotic. So these, they are fighting hard here to try and reinvent themselves. There are two points on Japan um, that I want you to remember. The first one is... In spite of their economic difficulties, they took a big decision in 2000 to introduce compulsory aged care insurance for everybody over 40. People moaned, they griped, but guess what? They love that system now. That system costs their economy, as far as I can tell, I'm not an economist, somewhere between 1.2 and 1.5% more of their GDP. But they did it. And people are happy. The problem with their pricing approach, by the way, is do you know what percentage of hospitals in Japan are running a deficit? 60%. But the point is, we can study Singapore and we can study Japan to see how we can model our own responses to what will be a pressing problem in the next few years. Now, there are just two or three more points, if I may, if I've got time, that I want to talk about. The, the, the first one relates directly to John's point about growth. Now, in KPMG, we've been doing a lot of work on workforce. And there's an article today in the Health Service Journal from me on it. There's a, a piece in the Times this week about workforce. And the point that I want to mention on this is when you look at growth in OECD countries since the Second World War, 
It is too easy to fall into this mantra, this self-pitying mantra, that our country is on the rocks, we've got an ageing population, an unproductive workforce, and we're not competitive. That's, that's true in part, but it's not, it's not true in toto. And the reason why I say that is when you look at the uh, rising healthcare costs since 1945, 60% of them, perhaps 70% of them, have been what economists call autonomous growth. And do you know what autonomous, autonomous growth means? We did it to ourselves. These are, these are not controlled by God, these forces. They are controlled by mere mortal human beings like me and you. And therefore, the issue about productivity is a very important issue which we can control if we want to. My penultimate point, to go back to my favourite subject, the French, is that last year we uh, had a big debate. There's a big debate in Chamonix every year where the 200 leaders of the French system, from philosophers to ethicists, with a couple of grubbing hospital managers and lots of politicians, meet to debate the pressing issues of the French health system. And perhaps it's only the French that uh, could ask us, so I had to debate against Sarkozy's brother, which is quite interesting, very smooth, uh, and not me, him. And basically the debate was, is wellness more important than gross domestic product? Now, the reason why the French wanted to debate this is because Sarkozy's brother, the president, had launched this as a big European Union issue in 2008. And then, of course, David Cameron and this government have carried on with this. Now, the, the last slide from Dan, I want to basically reaffirm something which is blindingly obvious. But if you think about it for just a bit more, you'll see it's humanly profound. So the obvious thing from the wellness surveys is that 80% of those reporting good health were happy, but only 20% of those that didn't have good health were happy. So the point is, I know we always say politicians are very sensitised to health because it's the most important issue for people, and your slide was a great slide, but this issue about wellness, wellness being bigger than gross domestic product because it measures all sorts of things, the state of our governance, the state of our communities, the state of our education system, how we deal with old people in dignity and compassionate care, a big issue for this week. I think the reason why health is the most important sector on the planet is because it's the most important thing that makes people happy or unhappy as they live their lives, greater than economic transactions which are monitored through GDP. And so um, I'm going to end up with a, a question and, and a research itch that I'd like to scratch. If you buy that the NHS is, I still think, the highest performing system in equity, efficiency and effectiveness, of course we need to do things about the way we control productivity and growth. If you look over 50 years, and if you've read Ridley's, the, um, what's it called, the um, Rational Optimist, of course our economy is going to grow over the next 50 years, and of course we can afford to spend an extra one or two percentage points on GDP. All of this, once again, is not ordained by God or your God, it's controlled by human beings. And here's my question. In 1911, when Lloyd George introduced the first ever National Insurance Act, which was the forerunner to the National Health Service, then three people paid, as you know, the employers, the employees and the government. And do you know why Lloyd George introduced the National Insurance Act of 1911? We could debate about this all day. There were two principal reasons. You're going to love this. The, well, I hope you'll love it. The first reason is he was scared about Germans having a higher life expectancy in the run-up to war. And secondly, he was scared about Germany being so strong economically that he understood that a healthy workforce was a productive workforce. 
Now, it's interesting, when you look at the total sum of what we now bring in receipts in national insurance, I could be correct because I'm not an economist, but it's about 130, 140 billion. If you add up health and social care, what does it come to? Now, I'm not saying that we should go back to 1911. I am saying we need the political strength, as they did in 1911, to think about the next 20 or 30 years. We all know that if you leave a problem to fester, that problem is more difficult to solve. The government is right to make sensible steps now to cap the amount that people pay for their care. I believe in this room just last week, Andy Burnham has launched a very interesting consultation about the future of health and care. But to answer the exam question that I was uh, asked to respond to today, we are a great country. We have a great NHS. It is fundamentally sound. We need principles of social solidarity, but also principles of organisational agility on the supply side. I think it's possible for us to do all of these things. My comment about every system at the moment and it's funny, as I travel the world, and, and forgive me for this small um, scare word, people say to me, well, what was it like in so-and-so? What was it like in so-and-so? And I've got a sort of one-liner now, which I hope you'll find amusing. And I say, same shit, different country. Because we're all facing the same issues. But we can learn from other people, but our system, I think, is fundamentally sound. And to conclude, it is possible for us to decide to spend more of our GDP on health and care, I think the separation of health and care is a 19th, mid-20th century uh, anomaly which needs to be corrected. And I think this debate about which, which is the best way to raise funds between social solidarity or a point of need when you're facing difficulties in your old age is something which we can debate to and fro. But I genuinely think that if we can control autonomous growth, we can have a system that spends more of our GDP as our GDP grows. And we can demonstrate to the world we are the most effective, efficient and equitable system in the world. Thanks very much indeed.